0: Last week we were looking at the life of a man named Simon the Magician. So we're going to pick back up here in Acts chapter 8 where we left off last week. Now, our study through the book of Acts has been taking us through all of these different passages where we've been looking at what the church did after Jesus ascended back into heaven and how they started taking the gospel from where they were out now to the ends of the earth. In fact, actually what we're going to see today is in one way of thinking about it, we're going to see by the end of this chapter that the gospel has had already gone to what they considered the end of the earth. Kind of fascinating to see what God did. Thus far, during the early chapters, we had seen what God was doing through the church in Jerusalem. We'd seen that they'd encountered issues with the religious leaders, and they were preaching Jesus. They didn't like it. They kept getting thrown in jail, but they continued to preach anyway. We saw that there was a conflict within the church because some of the folks were being neglected. And so there was a group of men that we said were the prototypes for the men that we have serving as deacons, um, And so those men served the church to help meet the need and help bring the church through that. But then, now we've been looking at the life of some of those men. The first was Stephen. He was one of the men who stood up and boldly defended the faith, and he got killed for it. You'll remember then that as Stephen was martyred, that began a persecution that scattered the church, and everybody except the apostles had to disband and run and scatter throughout the rest of the the area there in Judea and Samaria. And with that was a guy named Philip. Philip was one of the seven guys that had been set aside. By the way, um, later on in Acts, Paul stays with this Philip. It confirms this is Philip the evangelist, Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle, okay, just for those who are wondering. I know, I geek out on this stuff. Um, I was reading through Acts, I think it's in 22, where it says that he stayed with Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. So that's the Philip we're talking about here. He was in Caesarea, which is where we'll find him at the end of this, all right? By the way, before I came in today, I had a large black coffee from McDonald's, okay? Can you tell? All right. So as we're diving in, though, what we're picking up, we saw last week this guy, Simon, was following Philip around. He had made what looked like a profession of faith in Christ, but as we saw last week, it was a fake faith. It was all about being seen. It was all about notoriety. It was all about wanting other people to notice how good a guy he was, right? And so what we saw last week was that fake faith is all about the eyes. It's all about externals. It's all about being seen. What we're going to see this week through the story of the Ethiopian official or the Ethiopian eunuch is we're going to see what it looks like to have genuine faith. And the contrast we're going to see is it's not about the eyes and what people see or about being noticed, but instead, genuine faith is all about the heart, okay? So we're going to encounter a man that we refer to as the Ethiopian eunuch. He was a high-ranking official in the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. By the way, the Ethiopia that's mentioned here is not likely the Ethiopia of today. Um, that would have been more like uh, the kingdom of Kush back then. Um, this is actually the ancient Nubian Empire, which like, oh, pff, of course, yeah. The ancient Nubian Empire, which would be closer to modern-day Sudan. Now, for interesting fact, for the Romans, they've considered the ancient Nubian Empire to be the end of the earth. What did Jesus say that the gospel was to be proclaimed? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So here's what we're seeing. Through Philip, as we're going to see today, as God saves the Ethiopian eunuch through Philip's ministry, God's fulfilling the command already to take the gospel to what they thought was the end of the earth. Now it's continuing to spread, and it's continuing to go, but it's fascinating to see it went like that. Because remember, it had stayed in Jerusalem for months, possibly even years, and then now all of a sudden they get scattered, and next thing you know, they're in Judea, Samaria, and boom, God's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Incredible how God used the difficult circumstances to make that happen. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this section. It's in Acts chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 25, and then we're going to read all the way down through verse 40. As we go, we're going to take some time to sort of explain some of the things that are going on, and then we're going to come back and look at this and draw out from this four different marks of a genuine faith, okay? So as we're doing this, uh, let's read this story together. And like I said, I'll try to explain some of what's going on. So, verse 25, so after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, talking about the apostles, traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. You remember that Peter and John had come to check on what was going on in Samaria, and they saw God working there. And so then, after they'd preached for a little bit, they went back, and as they were going back through, they kept preaching in some of these villages, and they got back to Jerusalem. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news this week, you might recognize that word. Gaza has been all over the news. Gaza is the city that is currently under, uh, the, in the midst of the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. Gaza was an ancient city that was fought over time and time again because the main road up across the Mediterranean Sea ran right through Gaza. Well, it was also kind of your last watering hole before you started the desert trek down into Egypt. So there was a road that went from Jerusalem to Gaza that was kind of deserted. It wasn't very populated. There wasn't super well traveled. And that's exactly where Philip is told to go. Now, it's kind of interesting. Um, I was hoping that Jimmy would be here today, but he's not. If you guys know any traveling evangelists, If they get to a church and God is moving and God is saving people and God is working, what do they want to do? Stay there, right? It just makes sense. If God's moving, I want to be where God is and I want to to see God work. So what's been happening in Samaria? Well, God's been saving people. God's been working. God's been doing miracles through Philip. What does this, this angel tell Philip that God wants him to go do? Leave this booming, successful, amazing ministry and go to the backside of nowhere. Go to the desert road. Kind of interesting to see that God doesn't always call us to success. By the way, I'm going to have to twist this a little bit before I get caught on it. All right. I'll tell you what. All right, we're good. All right. So why would he leave a great ministry location and head somewhere desolate? Well, because God's plan was bigger than anything else that we could have imagined. God was doing something that he never could have decided on his own, all right? So keep going. Verse 27, so he got up and went. Isn't that a great statement? He didn't say, well, but God, I've got this great ministry. God, I'm... Nope, he got up and he went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Now, let's kind of go over this again. Like I said, this is likely the ancient... Ubian Empire, when it says that he was a eunuch and a high official of Candace. Although the the term eunuch could also be synonymous with treasurer, this man likely was an actual eunuch uh, because Luke reiterates his position in the court. So this guy had given a sacrifice of himself, basically, to be able to serve as a treasurer in the court of the Candace. The word Candace there, by the way, is not her name. It's a royal title, kind of like Pharaoh or Caesar. So he is a high official in the court of the Candace, okay? There in Ethiopia. This dude would have been a really big deal, okay? He's over the treasury for an entire large ancient empire, that's a really big responsibility. The fact that he's been able to be gone likely for a few months to come up to Jerusalem to hear about God, that's a really big deal, that the the queen would actually allow him to come do that. This guy is powerful and important. Now, so keep going, all right? He was sitting in his chariot on his way home, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Back in those days, um, it was commonplace for people to read out loud. You actually didn't typically read silently. you read out loud. So that's not all that unusual. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Now, pause for just a second. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're a high-ranking official. You're sitting in your chariot. You're reading. And all of a sudden, some guy runs up to your chariot. Okay? Now, if that were happening today, you would probably get drawn on and fired upon, right? You run up out of nowhere, you run up to this chariot, high-ranking official, who are you? And yet Philip runs right up to him and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? God's at work here because he doesn't have any kind of decorum in the way he does it. The spirit just told him, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, how can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Now, Philip knew that this was referring to Jesus, so he started there and shared from the Scriptures how Jesus came to die for him. Then go to verse 36. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Now, pause real quick. If you have a King James Version, you're gonna keep reading into verse 37. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice that there's brackets around verse 37. If you have a CSB or you have an ESV or an NIV, you'll notice that it's actually down in the footnotes. So if you look down in your footnotes, it says in, in my Bible there, verse 836, to look down to the footnotes, it says some manuscripts include, verse 37, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, why is that not in the Bible that I'm using? Does that mean that they've taken out parts of God's word? Okay, we don't have a lot of time to discuss this deeply. And I probably have already run into an issue by opening this can of worms on a Sunday morning, but I will gladly buy you coffee this week to talk about it. However, let me give you the brief explanation, all right? The short version is this. When the King James was translated back in the 1600s, they had uncovered and discovered a certain amount of manuscripts, okay? As time has gone on, archaeologists have found older manuscripts. In other words, ones that were closer to the date of writing. It's generally assumed that the closer you get to the date of writing, the more accurate the manuscript may be, okay? Now, think about the game telephone. Did you ever play the game telephone where everybody sits in a circle and, you know, you, you whisper something to the person next to you, and then, and then they whisper it, and then they whisper it, and then they whisper it, and by the end, it's absolutely nothing like it was supposed to be, okay? So to those kind of, the longer the time is, the more likely that you'll introduce some kind of scribal error, okay? You guys track it with me so far? So, The oldest manuscripts that we have do not have verse 37 in it. So the translators have to make a decision. Do they go with the older manuscripts or do they go with the manuscripts that the King James used? Most likely, given the wording of this and how kind of formulaic it is, this actually is reflecting for us and teaching us something interesting about the early church. Most likely, this is the baptismal formula that the early church used. In other words, if I was your pastor back in the early church and you were getting ready to get baptized, I would ask you this question. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And your response would be, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So then, based on your profession of faith and Jesus as Savior and Lord, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and raised to walk in newness of life, Right? Buried with him with likeness unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. Okay? So this is indicating what's likely been something that was a practice in the early church, and at some point, somebody inserted it in there. Now, for some of you who said, I thought we believed that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. We absolutely, 100%, without equivocation, do believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. It is holy without error, and it is our only rule of faith and practice. So how do we reconcile a critical text, which is where you've got something like this, where you leave a verse out with our doctrine of inerrancy, okay? Again, we don't have time to get into this in depth, but at the same time, I wanted you to see it because it's right here in the text. We believe that God has miraculously and done an amazing job in preserving the text. If you look at any of these passages that are disputed as that they weren't in the oldest and, and some will say oldest and best manuscripts, if you look at any of the passages, that are in those disputed texts, there is no major doctrine of Scripture that is disputed, period, end, okay? The majority of these things are like the way you spell somebody's name, the number of people who died in a battle, whether or not you've got something like this that may be an insertion from an early church source. None of these call any doctrine of Scripture into question, okay? So this does not challenge our doctrine of inerrancy, okay? We clear on that? Now, if I had my preference, if I had a chance to sit down with the guys who translated the CSB, I would much rather them have done what the New American Standard Translators did, leave it in, put brackets in it, put a footnote, and say, hey, this may not have been in there originally, okay? That, that's what my preference would have been, but they didn't do that, okay? Clear as mud. If you want to talk more about textual criticism, I can get real deep with you. Uh, I've got all kinds of different aids we can talk about. I'll buy you coffee or lunch in the next two weeks, and we'll sit down and figure it out, Okay? All right, I almost feel like we should take questions right now, but we can't do that. All right. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And as this eunuch sat and read the inspired word of God, God used it to draw him to himself. And so that's why, as Philip explained, that this was about Jesus and that following Jesus was the next step that you would do was to publicly proclaim Jesus through baptism, just like my wedding ring shows that I'm married to my wife, Samantha, and been married for almost 15 years. Can you believe it? Um, I know, right? She's actually put up with me that long. This shows that I'm married to Samantha, but it doesn't make me married. In the same kind of way, baptism demonstrates that you have died your old way of life. You've been raised that newness of life. It's the symbol that shows everybody the decision that you have made. By the way, if you need to be baptized, we would love to baptize you. And we'll see, we don't have a lot of time to get into the details of it. But baptism, we believe, is by immersion, which is why he says, hey, look, here's some water. Why don't I get baptized here? Philip pulls the chariot over. Sure, let's do it. And so they baptize him right there in the water, okay? We, uh, if you have questions about that or if you'd like to get baptized, in fact, we've got two more Sundays before I uh, leave on sabbatical, and I would love to baptize you before we go if that's something that you need to do as a step of obedience. So we believe after you're saved, after you've been drawn to Christ, you make that as a public profession of your faith by showing the world that you've been baptized, died your old way of life, raised a new life. So if you need to be baptized, let me know. All we can do is fill that thing up, and we can heat it up in like six hours. It's great. Maybe not that quick, but we'll make it happen, Okay? So Philip sees the Ethiopian eunuch. They pull over to the side of the road. They sit and talk about Isaiah. The Ethiopian eunuch says, well, here's some water. Why can't I get baptized? So here's what happens next. This is where it gets good. Pick up in verse 38. So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, can you think about that for just a second? Like, you're sitting here, and you're, you're going through, this guy baptizes you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. My brother, raised to walk in newness of life, boom, disappears. How crazy would that be, right? It says that the Spirit snatches him up and takes him all the way down. It says, verse 40, Philip appeared in Azotus, and he went traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And that's actually where he settles because that's where Paul meets him later in the book of Acts. What an incredible story this traveling evangelist preaching in Samaria. God says, go down to the desert road. He meets this Ethiopian eunuch, this official in the high court of the Candace and sees that God has been preparing this man's heart. And in this moment, this man comes to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So let's try to take just a few minutes then and let's look at what that genuine faith looks like, all right? When I mentioned this to you, I told you that genuine faith is all about the heart. First thing that we see is genuine faith has a heart to pursue, a heart to pursue. When we first encounter the Ethiopian eunuch, we find him on his way back from Jerusalem. It's likely that he had come to Jerusalem months before for the feasts, and he's been there ever since. He had traveled a long way. Remember, guys, you didn't just buy a ticket. You didn't just grab a train. You didn't just hop in the airplane and go. This was a long and involved process. But he traveled a long way, had been there a long time, and that tells us something about him. This eunuch had a heart that was pursuing God. Now, we don't know how down in Ethiopia he had heard about the one true God, but he had. Now, he'd come all this way to worship in, in the city that God had chosen to put his name in. Now, here's there's something that, that you may not catch offhand that makes this more incredible to notice. It makes it awkward for us to talk about sometimes because of the nature of this, but have you noticed that it kind of makes a big deal about the fact that he was a eunuch? Why would it go over that? Why would it bring that up? Why is that important? Well, because, see, in Deuteronomy 25, 31, the Bible tells us this is not on the screen, but we find out that even if he were to undergo all of the other rites to convert to Judaism, he would never fully be a part of the community because he was a eunuch. It was impossible for him to go into the temple. He would never have been allowed. Even if he had gone through every other ritual that was involved, he could not actually become a Jew. He would have traveled all this way and still not have been able to convert fully. He could have gone to the synagogues and learned and worshiped there, but he would have been forever denied access to the actual temple itself. Now, that's how serious this guy was. He was willing to come all of that way just to get close, just to be near the God of Israel. Even if he couldn't go in the temple, even if he couldn't take full part in all of the sacrifices, he just wanted to be there. Some of you have been there. Maybe you were always fascinated by religion, and so you studied and read about every religion that you could find. Some of you may be you're right now and that's why you're here this morning is because you've been researching all of the major world religions and you've been trying to figure out what's true and, and so you've been coming to church because you figure that's where you ought to hear about Jesus, I guess. And if Christians follow Jesus, then this is the best place for you to be. I want you to know that if if you're here this morning and or if you're watching this online or you're watching this sometime later, if that's you and you're searching this morning, I want you to see that God is drawing you to himself. See, you may think that you're the one doing the pursuing, but see, Scripture teaches us that we don't make the first move. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to me, talking about coming to Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. You may think that you're pursuing God, but guys, the reality is, if you're genuinely searching after truth and you're genuinely seeking him, it's only because he saw you first, and he's drawing you to himself. Why would he do that? Well, because he loves you. Because he loves you. See, he loved you so much that he would die for you. And he wants you to have a relationship with him. So you've got to make a decision this morning. If you've been on the fence about whether or not you're going to follow Jesus, this is the point for you to make this time and this decision. Are you going to respond to him like the Ethiopian by humbly turning to him? Or are you going to reject all this and say that it's mushy and weird and superstitious and guys, listen, I, you know me, I don't like to fear monger or anything like that. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. What the Bible says is don't push him away. Paul was worried in, the, in scripture about people doing that same thing in one of the churches he wrote to. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, working together with him, talking about God, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Some of you are sitting there saying, yeah, when I graduate, I'll go ahead and I'll try to spend some more time figuring out who this, you know, where I am with God and we'll get things squared away. Well, once I get married and have kids, I want them to be raised in the church and stuff like that. So I- I'm going to do that. I- I'll get there one day. Guys, now is the Today is the day to be saved. Listen, if you are feeling God drawing on your heart, if this is making sense to you in a way that it never has, don't put that off. Run towards him. Yeah, but Sean, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. But guys, as God's moving in your heart, be like this Ethiopian eunuch. Don't give up. Keep searching. Keep looking at God's word. Pray and seek his face and say, God, I need you. I I need you to explain this to me because it doesn't make sense. I need to follow you. See, the Ethiopian had a heart to pursue because God had been pursuing him. God had been drawing him to himself. And he put Philip in just the right place at just the right time. By the way, um, for those of you who know Jesus, if your coworker or your family member or your neighbor or your friend or your roommate or whoever, if they all of a sudden start asking questions about Jesus or they never have been interested in before, God's moving. If they're seeming genuinely convicted about sin, not just like, "Ah, I feel bad that I got caught or I really blew it last night or whatever. If they're feeling genuinely convicted about sin, that's something that only God can do. And guess what? God picked you up and put you right there. So be like Philip and don't miss it. See, genuine faith is a heart to pursue. For Philip, that meant to pursue this guy out into the desert, right? Now, for some of you, though, your story may look a little different. You didn't feel like you were pursuing God. In fact, You may have been trying to run as far and as fast as you could. However, he loved you so much that he would chase after you. He loved you so much that he wouldn't allow you to be satisfied, and maybe that's why you're here. You're tired of fighting what you know you need to do. So why not just surrender? And Why not? Like, I'm not talking theoretically here today. This is not just me standing up here for my own cardiovascular health by yelling at you for a while, right? Why not surrender to Christ today? Stop running. Genuine faith worked in the Ethiopian eunuch to drive him to God. But when he came to that place, we need to see another indication of genuine faith, and that is not only is it a heart to pursue, it's also a heart to acknowledge need. A heart to acknowledge need. This is hard, isn't it? Look back again at verse 30. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? Isn't it fascinating to see this dude, like I said, high-ranking official in a large empire, all the money, all the access to it, and yet some random guy runs up to him on a random street and says, hey, you understand what you're reading? Of course I do. I'm the chief treasurer for the Candace of Nubia. No. He's willing to acknowledge his need. He's truly humble and willing to acknowledge that he needs somebody to help him. As we mentioned, Philip broke through all kinds of customs by just barging up and piping in like this. This is a dramatic difference, by the way, from Simon, who we saw last week. You remember, Simon always seemed happy to be the powerful and the respected one in the room. He was all about the appearances. And and the only time we actually see him asking for help is when he's asking to buy the trick to be able to give people the Holy Spirit, right? But the Ethiopian eunuch instead is willing to acknowledge his need and say, I have no idea. Can you help me? That's the essence of genuine faith. It starts with a humble recognition of need. It's a recognition that we can't figure it out all on our own. By the way, remember last week we said that the natural man can't understand the things of God. In other words, without Jesus in your life, you can't understand these things. So 1 Corinthians 2.14, we said, but the the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. Although this man had been seeking God, he was not yet saved, and so God's Word still didn't make sense to him. And I'm not telling you, by the way, that if you get saved, you'll all of a sudden understand every mystery of God and everything about... uh, That's not how it works. There's still a growth process, but God's Word begins to make sense in a way that it never has. See, he was willing to acknowledge, I just don't get it. So are you willing to listen to somebody who's been made alive by the grace of God to help you see the truth of God's love for you? Guys, I'm I'm nothing special. I promise you that. If you were in my house, you'd hear me get mad at my kids when I shouldn't. You'd see me be lazy when I should be active. If you were around me, you, you would know all kinds of things that aren't what they ought to be. So as I stand here and tell you this, I'm not standing here as some guy who's arrived, who's made it. I just know that, as I showed Mike Montgomery the place the other day, I could take you down to 100 West Main Street, and I could take you to the, there's a a landing on the back stairs. And as I was coming down those stairs to that landing, God drew me to himself, and I surrendered to him. I want that for you. That, has changed everything about my life. I'm not saying that you're going to become a pastor. I'm not saying that you're going to end up becoming a missionary and going to the ends of the world. But I'm saying surrendering to Christ, recognizing your own need that you can't do this, is how you find the hope that your heart has been longing for. But you've got to be willing to acknowledge your need. See, Jesus said that. Remember when we looked at the kingdom, or excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount, as God outlined for us the responsibilities and reactions of those that were to be a part of His kingdom? Matthew 5 3 said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is those. Be- blessed are those who are willing to acknowledge, I've got nothing to offer you. That's how you gain the kingdom of heaven. Not by working, not by trying real hard not by figuring out all the mysteries and reading every book and being a part of every Bible study. It's by saying, God, I can't do this. Have you done that? Genuine faith says, forget what others think of me. Forget what this will do to my reputation or my relationship or my job or even my life. I need to be saved and I can't do it on my own. Here's my fear. I I told you guys last week, my fear is that somebody will sit here week in and week out and hear me preach the gospel and never genuinely be saved. And it may be this very issue. Sean, I'm a founding member of this church, but I'm realizing I've never been saved. Sean, I've been in church for my entire life, but I've never genuinely placed my trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. What will everybody think of me if I come forward during the invitation and talk to you about following Jesus? You know what they'll think of you? They'll think, praise God, that God worked in this person's heart to bring them to the place of humbly acknowledging Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And if anybody has a cross word to say to you about it, you let me know, okay? It takes a fair amount to get me mad. That'll get me there. I don't care who you are if you've never genuinely been saved. Get saved today. Surrender. Acknowledge your need, stop putting on airs. Genuine faith demonstrates that humility. Now, with that there's also the heart to act. There's a heart to act, okay? Look at verse 36 again. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Isn't this awesome? I mean, this is just it. Philip has told him, when you come to Christ, you receive Christ, and you're baptized as a symbol of what Jesus has done for you. Philip says, well, hey, there's some water. Why don't we just do this thing? Absolutely, let's do it. See, with this, there's a heart to act. We acknowledge the need. And listen, guys, I cannot be more clear with you on this than we've already been. I'm going to say it again. The actions do not save you. However, the faith that saves will act, okay? Genuine faith always demonstrates itself through action. See, here's the difference. Simon's fake faith last week was, I'm going to do all of these things to impress others and God and make me feel better about who I am. However, the eunuch's eunuch's genuine faith said, because Jesus has done this for me, then sure, yeah, I'll get baptized. Yeah, if this is what he's told me to do, then let's just do this thing, right? I love that attitude. Genuine faith obeys to give back to the one who's already given us everything. It's not trying to earn something we don't have because what we've been given in Christ, he took my sin and died in my place and rose from the dead and gives me his life. So because of God drawing me to himself when I was nine years old in the back hallway at Main Street Baptist Church, because of that, I received the life of Christ, not because of my goodness, not because he saw that I was going to be a pastor one day, any of that stuff. God saved me because he saved me in his goodness and his mercy and his grace. And so now anything I do is simply a way of expressing back gratitude and joy and trying to honor the God who did that for me. Do You see the difference? This is the difference in Christianity and every other world religion. In every other religion, you're trying to appease a God of some kind. However you express it, however you describe it, your job is to try to make something happy, to try to attain some level, to try to keep something from being mad at you or whatever the case may be. But the gospel is that Jesus died for you because you couldn't make God happy because you always were going to sin and you couldn't do enough good stuff to get rid of it. So Jesus died for you. He was raised from the dead so that you could have new life. So now we don't do it to earn something. We do it because we've already been given something. So genuine faith must be accompanied by action, though. See, James said it very clearly in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Now, again, he's not saying that you have to work to earn your salvation. He's saying can that save save you? Can that faith save you? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be (laughs) well-fed. But you don't give them what the body needs? What good is it? Right? You see the picture? Like, I I want you to see how ridiculous this is, right? Somebody comes to you, and they're freezing, and they're hungry, and you say, go in peace, be warm, and be well-fed. Does that do any good? Buy him food, buy him a jacket, right? Just saying things doesn't do any good. He said, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have any works, is dead by itself. So if you claim to have faith, if you claim that you know Jesus and you've been saved, that ought to change the way you work. It ought to change the way you treat your family. It ought to treat the way you change the way you do school. It ought to change everything about who you are and what you do. If it doesn't, then you have a dead faith. Because see, this guy knows really very little about Jesus, and he's immediately willing to do whatever Jesus tells him. Now, I imagine that this guy probably didn't have on his baptismal clothes, right? You know, he didn't have any time to make sure that he had all the gel that he needed for his hair and some extra deodorant and all that kind of stuff. No, he sees water. Jesus said, be baptized. There's water. Let's do this, right? It almost seems reckless, doesn't it? In light of the love of God, that's how we respond, guys. If your life hasn't been changed, you're not saved. Well, that's awful judgmental. That's not me, guys. That's what God says in His Word. If your life hasn't changed, your faith is dead. So, do you have a genuine faith? If so, it better show itself in the way you act. And then, last thing that we want to see together it's a heart of joy. Okay? A heart of joy. Look at verse 39. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him in, on, any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Can you imagine how crazy this would have been? I, I, I told you guys, uh, get into God's word this way. Like you have an imagination, some of you, those of you who let it survive childhood, um, you have an imagination. So, so picture in your mind what this is like. There's this muddy pond on the side of the road. You stop this super fancy chariot that had space for two people to at least sit down in. He's got some entourage with him. We don't know how many people, but there's probably two, three, four servants there with him. And he says, hey guys, pull over. Let's do this thing. So Philip gets out and says, yeah, sure, let's go. So they get down in the water. They baptize him, come up out of the water, and boom, he disappears. Like, do you see how ridiculous that is? There's a part of me that might actually get mad at that. If I was the eunuch, right? That that guy had all the answers. He's the one that was telling me about Jesus, and now he just like he's gone, right? I mean, like, do you you, you get this? He he disappeared. Some of you are acting like, oh yes, of course he did. No, like he 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 was gone. The eunuch could have been like, well, he could have been disappointed. This was a guy I was trusting to help me figure out what's going on. What am I supposed to do next? I mean, I got baptized, but, but now what do I do? But what happened? He went on his way rejoicing. Why? Because God had transformed his heart and he said, I, I don't know how I'm gonna figure it out, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> I mean, we'll figure this thing out, right? I, I've been able to follow Jesus. I know what this is all about. And you know what's awesome? As a eunuch, he's still allowed full rights and access into the kingdom of God under the new covenant. There's no distance anymore. He can get baptized, he can serve, he can do anything that God calls him to do just like anybody else because that distinction is gone now that we're in Christ. So he went on his way rejoicing. Has the gospel produced in you a heart of joy or are you grumpy? I mean, let's be honest, guys. I have had moments, yesterday morning was not good in my house. I have moments where I've watched too much of the news or I just get upset about what all's going on. I get frustrated. I get irritable. I have too much coffee and that makes it worse. And in those moments, I got to stop and say, you know what, God? You're in charge. Are you being grumpy right now? If I asked your wife or your kids or your roommates, What's it like being around him right now? Would they say, "Oh man, he's got such a heart of joy." Yeah, he struggles from time to time, but but there's this deeply rooted joy that comes from his relationship with Christ. Or would they say, "Yeah, I don't think even a Snickers can fix that." Right? See, when we encounter Christ, it produces joy. It ought to. John 17, 13, Jesus says, now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world. He's talking about going back to the Father, and he said, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Do you think God is a joyful God? If not, then you need to read your Bible, because God makes it very clear he's a joyful God. Look at the sunset over these last few days. Look at the sky. Do you not see beauty there? Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. That's pointing to the beauty and majesty of God. Does that not produce joy in you? So if if God is a God of joy and Jesus said that, that we would have his joy filled up in us, as much of his joy as we can handle because we're finite and he's infinite. He said, that's my goal for that. Romans 14, Paul says this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Guys, our church should not be a grumpy church, right? Now, there are times when we need to lament. There are times when we need to reflect and be somber and recognize what sin is and mourn over the effects of sin in our world. But guys, our the kingdom of God is marked by righteousness, right, living before God, peace with God, with others, with ourselves, and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? Is your life marked with joy? It's supposed to be if you've got a genuine faith. Peter said that our belief brings about great joy. Verse, uh, 1 Peter 1, 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible, like I'm so madly in love with Jesus that, I, right? There's just no words. There's, I, I, it's, ah. Joy inexpressible. That's what genuine faith produces. Sean, if you knew what's going on in my life, though, you would not say that I should be joyful. Do you have any idea how hard things are? Do you know what I'm facing? Do you know what's going on? Let me remind you, joy does not always mean happiness. Now, it should also connect to happiness, by the way. We should be a genuinely happy people. We just should. We have more reason than anybody in the history of the world to be happy because no matter what happens, we've got Jesus, okay? But there are times when life is really hard and and it's not appropriate to be bubbly and happy. In fact, if you do, there's probably something mentally wrong with you. Okay? Jeremiah went through one of those times. The city of Jerusalem had been obliterated in a horrific way. See, we, when we think about modern warfare, modern warfare has these rules of engagement about what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do, trying to minimize casualties and civilians and things like that. That's not the way that warfare worked in the ancient world. You killed everyone and everything. It was horrific, and some of the things that happened in Jerusalem would be difficult to talk about on a Sunday morning. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations out of that experience, and in the dead center of the book, you find this. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. After talking about all that had happened to Jerusalem, all that he felt that God had done to him personally as the prophet, he says, yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. Keep in mind what Jeremiah had been doing. Jeremiah had spent years telling God's people, this is your last chance. If you don't repent, God will obliterate the city. And nobody listened to him. Nobody did. And then when it finally happened and God brought judgment, they all looked at Jeremiah and said, this is your fault. They basically said, you jinxed us. And in the middle of all of that, having watched all of these people be slaughtered in front of him, knowing that if they had just listened to him, if they had just listened to what God said, they could have avoided that. Watching all of this, Jeremiah dies in exile as best we know. And looking at all of that, he says, yet this I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's loving kindness, we don't perish. His mercies are new every morning. That's a heart of joy. That even when it's not right to be happy, there's still this deep-rooted hope that we talked about in our songs that we sang this morning that I know that God's got this. I know that God's got me. So here's my challenge for you this morning. We've looked at fake faith in Simon the Magician last week. We've looked at genuine faith in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch this week. Which of these most categorizes you? Are you doing what you do so that others will see, hoping that you'll eventually be able to impress God? or are you running hard after him saying, God, I can't do this. Whatever you say, I'm gonna do it. And is that producing joy in you? If not, you may not have a genuine faith. But you can. You can. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes this morning. I'm gonna invite Daniel up just to, Play for us this morning just to give us some background music so that it's not too awkward for you as you're sitting there doing business with God. Here's my question for you. Is your faith genuine? Have you surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord or have you been trying to do this on your own? If not, Maybe for the first time in a long time you've realized this is not for real I, I've never genuinely trusted Jesus then guys while Daniel's playing I want you to cry out to God okay I, I want you to take the time to say God I need you there's no magic incantation there's no set prayer that you're supposed to pray or anything like that but say God I need you to save me I need you to rescue me I, I've messed up i the Bible says that that's sin, I, I've sinned and I've fallen short of what you've called me to be and do. God, I want you to save me today. I want to place my trust in you because I can't do this on my own. You can do that right now where you're seated. If, if you're watching this in your living room, you can do that in your living room right now. You don't need me there. So why not do it? Place your faith and trust in Christ today. If today, though, you know that you're saved and you've placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, are you still willing to acknowledge your need? Are you still pursuing God? Are you still acting and obeying and doing what God told you to do? And is there joy in your life because of following Christ? If not, then why don't you take one of those four that heart to pursue. Heart to acknowledge need. Heart to act. And a heart of joy. What's the one thing you need to do this week to change one of those areas? To grow in that? Take just a moment there and do business with God. If you want me to pray with you about something, if you want to talk to me about surrendering your life to Christ or some other kind of public decision, I'm down front would love to talk with you about it. If not, you just do business with God where you are. Take some time to meet with him. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take this time together. Father, we thank you that you saved that Ethiopian unit, that you took the gospel to the end of the earth at that day by taking it through a man who couldn't have been a part of your covenant community to start with, but because of what Jesus has done, was able to find salvation. So God, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, help them to turn their eyes to you and be saved this morning. For those of us who do, help us to live out this genuine faith and do business with you right now.